Matthew chapter 9 and verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Keep the Bible open and Adrian, please come and teach us. And Hannah, oh yes, of course. Hold on. Thank you, Adrian. to uh, first of all say how uh, wonderful it is to be with you here at Beckham Tree Church. Um, it was great visiting you uh, back in March. Uh, I was tremendously blessed and learned a lot from, from you guys and what you're doing in reaching the lost uh, on the estate and, and around in this area. And we've tried to adopt that uh, in Peckham. Um, so tremendously blessed by that. Um, why don't we start by asking the Lord for uh, his help as we seek to understand what he'd say to us from this passage. Let's bow our heads and pray. Uh, gracious and heavenly uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for your love and your compassion, your mercy. Thank you that you have uh, rescued us from a sure and certain uh, destiny we had separated, separated from you uh, in hell, Father. Uh, we recognize there are so many people headed in that direction all around us. We pray that you'd open our eyes to uh, have compassion uh, for those. Uh, Father, we thank you that uh, as we read the words of the Bible, you speak to us still today, your spirit speaks to us. And Father, we do pray that that would happen in this moment. Please, would you fill me with your spirit and fill us all that we'd be able to understand and grasp and be molded and transformed by your word and that we'd be moved to act uh, accordingly uh, with your word. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, I want to start by asking a question. Uh, and the question is, are we done with Christianity in London? Are we done with Christianity in London? Are we living in a city that's done with the gospel? Uh, statistically, 48% of Londoners claim to be Christians. But even at that, uh, we, can we truly say that that is an accurate representation uh, of the spiritual state of our city? Can we say that that's an accurate representation of 
of people when we look around. The truth is that uh, we are living in a time where the population of Christians is in decline. We can assume out of that 48% of people who profess to be Christians that only 8% or under 8% are actually evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians. Now, just to put that into perspective, um, the harsh truth is that in a population of just under 10 million people in the whole of London, 9 million, 9 million of those aren't evangelical Christians. 9 million people aren't believers. That's disturbing, isn't it? It ought to be disturbing. Uh, I, I wonder if you find that disturbing. But it's something that we need to come to grips with. And as followers of Jesus, living in London today, uh, in a state where there's spiritual darkness all around us, we should be concerned enough to do something about it. We should be concerned enough to want to change the state of things around us. And so let me ask you a question. Does it bother you that the majority of people that you come into contact with on a daily basis have no relationship with Jesus? Does it bother you that they have no relationship with Jesus and that they are are headed toward a destiny separated from God in hell? Does that bother you? Think about that for a second. Millions of people destined for hell. It ought to bother us. It ought to bother us. So what what should we do about this? What's the solution? Uh, Do we need to kind of slightly tamper with the gospel that we have? Do we need to kind of um, tweak it a little bit in order to match the times? Do we need to adapt our gospel message to the contemporary times? To make it more relevant, to make it more appealing to people? Or should we just forget mission altogether if people aren't interested and kind of focus on, you know, living in our Christian ghettos? Is that the way we ought to respond to this spiritual darkness, to this Christian decline? Is that the way we ought to respond? Well, I don't think anything I just, any of the ones I just suggested are a good solution. They don't represent the solution that the Bible uh, provides us with. And in this passage, as we look at Jesus' ministry, we find truth that's uh, relevant for our time that characterize his mission and ours. And so, why don't I pray for a second again as we think about that. Let's pray again. Father, it's deeply concerned, deeply concerns us that We live in a time, in a city, where there is spiritual decline. And Father, we do pray that as we hear your word today, we would listen with ears that are are willing and wanting to engage with this issue and to deal with it and to see that something changes, particularly here in Beckentree and in Peckham and in other places where we may be... uh, 
residence of. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this part of Matthew's gospel, uh, having announced and taught the gospel of the kingdom in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, which I think you guys are, are now looking at, uh, Jesus has been demonstrating his authority. He's been demonstrating that he is the long-promised king who will bring in his kingdom and he will welcome people into his kingdom. And through chapters 8 and 9, uh, we get a kind of preview, a trailer, if you like, of life in his kingdom. We see him performing symbolic miracles, cleansing and healing and delivering. We see him reversing the effects of God's judgment on the world because of sin in the lives of individuals. It's a snapshot of God, of Jesus, the rescuing king, God's rescuing king, coming to rescue people from the consequences of sin. It's, in, it's Jesus engaging in the work of rescuing people into his kingdom. He welcomes sinners. He calls them to follow him. And it's at this point that we're introduced to what's going on in our passage. Look with me at verse 35. I'm going to read it again. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus was fully invested in the business of bringing the good news of the kingdom into the lives of people. Can you see that? Can you see that? That's what he's doing in both teaching and preaching. But not only in that, in demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom and demonstrating his mercy and his power, just as he's been doing before. But now he's going to all the towns, all the villages, because he wants to engage with everyone. There are a lot of people who need to hear the gospel of the kingdom. And he goes especially into the synagogues where people gather so that he could meet as many as possible. It's extensive. We've already established that there are over 9 million people living in London. Uh, Well, as we look at this passage, the amount of people Jesus is reaching doesn't touch that. It's not even half of that. But it is a large amount of people. We're talking about thousands of people in the region of Galilee. And that's a mammoth task if you consider the fact that it's actually only one man doing this at one point, at this point. He's a one-man band at this point. So in chapter 10, uh, just a few verses on, he's going to extend his kingdom and he's going to extend... He's going to extend this mission to reach people with the good news of the gospel by delegating to his 12 disciples. A mission that by the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, we're going to see it's going to extend to the whole world. A mission that he's going to call all disciples to engage in, to bring the good news of the gospel to people all over. It's a mission that's reached Beckentry. It's a mission that's reached Peckham. It's a mission that's reached you. It's a global mission, and we're privileged to be part of that. But I want you, I want, I want you to notice four things from the, from the remaining three verses. There are just four things I want to highlight that characterize both Jesus' mission and our mission as we seek to address the problem that exists in London. So there are four things 
that provide the context for all mission, both then and now. And the first one is that it addresses a great problem. It addresses a great problem. Look at verse 38. Let me read uh, verse 36. Sorry. Uh, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Looking upon the crowds, Jesus had gut-wrenching compassion. He was moved with sympathy. Have you ever kind of felt um, that kind of sympathy for someone? Have you ever been moved uh, with compassion by people you've come across? It's kind of like the deep sympathy that you have, for example, when you are walking on the street and you see maybe a homeless person that's sleeping out there on the street in the thick of winter and it's cold. Or after hearing of a friend's kind of uh, bad circumstances, maybe a, a bereavement, you're moved. Now, I want you to intensify that for a second. Think about that. That's what Jesus felt looking on the crowds. He was moved with compassion. Still in verse 38, why? Because they were harassed and helpless. Jesus wasn't just looking at their physical needs. We've seen him demonstrating his authority, bringing the kingdom into people's lives, healing people from every sickness and every disease. But he's also concerned with their underlying issue, with the universal need that they have. Much like a a good doctor. Uh, A doctor sees many patients, um, patients who are experiencing all sorts of discomforts. But if a doctor is any good at their job, what they want to do is look at the underlying condition, the condition that underlies all the symptoms. Well, that's at least the kind of doctor I'd want looking at me if I was ill. And as we look at the passage, I want you to notice what it means that they were helpless and harassed. I want you to notice uh, how this is given a clearer meaning through a metaphor. They are described as sheep without a shepherd. They are shepherdless sheep. Now, when we read this, uh, it kind of is drawing us back to the Old Testament. It's getting us to think about God's people in the Old Testament. He's, He's using language of the Old Testament the older part of the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 34. Uh, If you do get a chance, uh, please look it up. God tells his prophet, Ezekiel, uh, to prophesy against Israel's shepherds and their leaders because instead of caring for God's flock, they neglected them. They neglected God's flock while they took care of themselves. They ate curds, they clothed themselves with wool, and they feasted on the choicest animals, but they had no concern for the weak. They had no concern about healing the sick. They had no concern to bind up the injured. They didn't search for strays. Instead, they ruled the flock harshly, and they ruled the flock brutally. Basically, in other words, the flock were sheep without shepherds. They were helpless and harassed. And Jesus applies this to the relationship between the religious leaders of his day and the sheep, the people he's trying to reach out, the people he's trying to seek out. This is their condition. Instead of seeking out sheep, the religious leaders, 
that Jesus encountered, and we see that even in, in, in this same chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the religious leaders of Jesus' day saw the sheep as a problem. They were lost sinners who were holding God back from you know, fulfilling his promise, or at least their take on his promises, that would bring Israel into a new future, that would make Israel great again. That would bring their Messiah and free them from uh, uh, military oppression. Sinners were a problem to this flock, to to these leaders. The sheep were spiritually sick, needing healing. They needed careful attention, but they were viewed as a problem. Therefore, they were marginalized. They were kicked to the side. They were kicked to the curb. But Jesus viewed the leaders as the problem. They were bad shepherds. Well, in this same chapter we see, in in chapter 9, you'll see that Jesus is confronted by them because they see Jesus welcoming sinners. They're thinking, how can you sit with sinners and tax collectors? They were bad shepherds. I, I remember uh, some years back reading a book by a man named uh, Philip uh, Keller who uh, walks through Psalm 23. He's offering kind of a helpful insight as one who's been a shepherd in his lifetime growing up, growing up in Kenya. And I was struck by uh, how much um, there is a need, I guess, uh, for an ex- extreme degree of need of diligence in the care of sheep. There is extreme diligence needed to look after sheep, to care for them, to lead, for, to lead them, and to guard a flock. Negligence could so easily lead to sheep being lost by things like infections or, um, or by death through bloating or by predators coming to take them away as prey or by some wandering away. Now, when you think about that, you think about the imagery and you think about the situation that Jesus is describing, it's no wonder that he's filled with compassion. The stakes were high. They were sheep, there were sheep all around him who stood the chance of being lost. But I want you to notice something. How, did you notice that where the shepherds failed, Jesus was doing what they ought to have done. Jesus was bringing the kingdom into their lives. Did you notice that it said that Jesus healed every sickness and every disease. Jesus was caring for their physical needs, but he was also bringing the gospel of the kingdom into their lives. He was caring for their spiritual needs, their deepest need. Jesus was the good shepherd acting for their good. Can you see that? That's because God promised in Ezekiel 34 that he himself would remove the deadweight shepherds and search for and rescue and care for his flock. And Jesus puts it this way in in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He is the rescuing shepherd. He is God committed to people. He is God committed to you. That's why you're here today. Is God committed to people on this estate? 
He is the good shepherd. So similarly in Beckentree uh, and throughout London, there are shepherdless sheep all around us. There are lost sinners all around us who need welcoming and pointing to this good shepherd. They need welcoming. They need pointing. Why? Because they too stand uh, face the possibility of being lost. Because God did also promise judgment. And there are people who need to be rescued from God's rightful judgment because of sin into his kingdom. So let me ask you again, do do you see the eternal uh, future of lost sinners around you? Do you see that and, and feel as though there is a need for intervention? Are you moved for, with compassion or are you indifferent when you see people, when you see people at the workplace or when you see people even in your own family or when you see people at your socials? Are you moved with compassion? Well, why not the next time you go to work or drop your kids off or go to those socials or, or on your commute or when you're knocking on doors around this area, why not take a moment to consider all of those around you whom Jesus feels compassion for? Why not take a moment to think about them? Think about how Jesus is passionate that he would reach them, that you would reach them in his place. Why not take a moment to think about all the shepherdless sheep? Agnostics, atheists, Muslims, and many other groups who, according to statistics, are on the increase while Christianity declines. If we share the same mission, we we too need to be compassionate towards shepherdless sheep around us. Now, the question is, how should we view this problem? Uh, And how does Jesus view this problem? Well, the next two verses are Jesus' comments on this problem. So let me read verse 37 to you. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Uh, The religious leaders of that day viewed the problem as something that led to them turning their backs on lost people, on lost sheep. Are we to uh, view the problem in the same way? In such a way that... Living in our Christian ghettos, we are going to turn our backs on people who are sinners needing a savior. Do we see them as a problem that's not worth our time? Well, from this metaphor, uh, Jesus uses, um, Jesus judges the problem, uh, as we see, um, judges, judges the problem. And the next thing we see about mission is that it engages a great opportunity. Jesus sees it as a great opportunity. With, with the decline of uh, Christianity in recent decades in London and in the UK, it's probably easy for us uh, to be quite pessimistic about the future of the gospel, isn't it? And, and just an observation, just saying, um, our British culture, we're so, you know, kind of, tend, we have a tendency to be pessimistic about things, don't we? We are natural pessimists. Well, Jesus views a great harvest. Jesus views a great opportunity. Jesus has a perspective that there are many to be saved. There are many to be saved. Jesus has the perspective of a glass half full, not half empty. 
But like many metaphors uh, that Jesus uses, it's a metaphor that's got Old Testament kind of roots. It's got Old Testament meaning. In the Old Testament, uh, harvesting speaks of judgment. It's, it's an image that God uses to describe his judgment. He will harvest people in judgment, which sounds all quite confusing since Jesus is using it in a positive light. But when you put, together, put the two together and consider how Jesus is going to develop it later, he describes harvesting as a process of involving both um, separating good grain from bad grain, from bad weed. So that means that the process of harvesting means salvation for some and judgment for others. Precisely that there will be a time where the Lord will harvest some for salvation, but there will also be a time where he will harvest others for judgment. And therefore, Jesus is, is seeing a window of opportunity. It's a window of opportunity that exists from that time, the, the time of his ascension, until his return. That includes now. Okay, so in that light, I want us to think again about the rise of groups like agnostics, the rise of groups, groups like atheists and Muslims while Christianity declines. It sounds bad, but it's a wonderful opportunity. There are so many people to be reached with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times have you found yourself in a, a kind of conversation with a non-Christian that you've kind of uh, avoided taking the route of kind of going towards, you know, speaking about Jesus and, and speaking about the gospel because you think it's going to get shut down and you think people are going to look at you in a weird way. How many times have you done that? I, I know I've done that quite a few times. I've done that so many times. Well, we should probably repent for things like that because it's a wonderful opportunity. Every opportunity is a wonderful opportunity. But remember, it's an opportunity, it's a window of an opportunity because that window will one day close. There will be a time of harvesting of judgment. And so the question is, uh, will you make the most of that opportunity? Will you make the most of that opportunity or will you miss it? Will you make the most of that opportunity or will you miss it? However, despite that great opportunity, in verse 7, the metaphor also picks up on a great need. Even though the harvest is plentiful, uh, the workers to bring in the harvest are too few. Um, my mum is a NHS uh, nurse. She works in Potter's Bar. And one of the things that really, really grinds her gears about her job is that there's uh, so often uh, so many patients admitted to the wards, and yet there are few staff. There are so many people who need seeing to, who need medical attention, who need care, but there are too few nurses. And she and many of her colleagues feel understaffed and overstretched. Uh, a news article from a while back uh, reads, the NHS in England has nearly 100,000 jobs unfilled, a situation described as dangerously understaffed. Well, that's the kind of situation that Jesus is describing here. There's an opportunity to reach all sorts of people within this uh, window who need seeing, they need care, they need attention, 
And yet, there aren't enough people to get around to them. There aren't enough people to share the good news of the kingdom with them. Not least in our passion, because at the moment, it's only one man at this moment. But in the next few verses, he's going to increase that team. He's going to send others, because in order to carry out his rescue mission, he needs people. It involves people. Living in London where there's uh, so many people, we have a fantastic opportunity to reach people for Jesus. Yet the reality of things is that we're so underprepared to meet the great need of the shepherdless in our city. Uh, We're understaffed. We need more workers. So, for example, uh, you may have a good thing going on here. Um, You may have a great number of people, for example, knocking on doors week by week, twice a week. I want you to think about it. When you put it into perspective, and when you think about the sheer numbers of people who are living in spiritual darkness and spiritual confusion in in our city, we then realize that actually we don't have enough people. Our best numbers don't scratch the surface of the need that exists around us. We need more people. And not just for door door knocking, but in all sorts of uh, ministries, in service to the Lord, uh, in reaching the lost. Now, that's not to say that there's not good work going on here. Because when I came in March, I was tremendously blessed by what's going on. I was tremendously blessed to hear the the, uh, testimonies of people who have come through door knocking. It's not to say that there's not enough good work going on. There's fantastic work. But it is to say that we need more labourers. The labourers are too few. We shouldn't assume that uh, people are automatically going to find their way into church. That's not the way it worked for me. And that's probably not the way it happened for you. That's a sure way to, to see Christianity fall into kind of free fall. The Lord's harvests people for salvation through people, people like you and I. And so, that being said, what's the solution? Well, in the last verse, Jesus provides a great solution. Let me read a verse. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The answer to the problem, uh, the opportunity we've seen The need that we've seen that accompany mission lies in the Lord himself. Jesus uh, commands not just the twelve, since he's going to call call them to himself later, specifically in the next few verses, but he commands all his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send backup that he would send people into the harvest field, that he would send uh, uh, support. It's the Lord himself who has power, all power and all authority, just as we even sang. And it's the Lord himself who oversees mission. It's the Lord himself who oversees the gospel reaching people's lives. Therefore, uh, the expansion of his kingdom, the expansion of his mission is wholly dependent on him. It's in his hands, and we therefore need to wholly depend on him. And we can only do that in one way. We can only do that through prayer. It's him who sends workers. It's him who can make the gospel uh, gospel, uh, witness we have effective. 
but he waits for us to ask him. He wants us to ask him to do it. I want you to picture the most uh, anti-gospel person that you can think of in Beckentree. And I want you to know that the Lord can rescue that person and recruit them for his mission. The Lord can rescue them and recruit them into his rescue mission. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was a violent opposer of the gospel, yet once rescued, was super effective in helping the cause of the gospel. The author of this book, Matthew, in this very same chapter, he's a tax collector, he's a sinner, and yet Jesus calls him. And today we are reading the words of Matthew. Only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord can do that. And so where does this land for us? Where where does this land for us? Basically, the big thing for us to know here is that there is a harvest of lost people that needs more workers. And the solution begins in prayer. It's characteristic of all mission. And as we think about the spiritual condition of our city, we earnestly need to seek him. We earnestly need to seek him if we're going to address the situation, the problem ahead. This is the only route we can take. There's no other way. Jesus is the rescuing shepherd. He is the Lord of the harvest who oversees and sends helpers. Therefore, my question to you is, will you pray to him? Will you earnestly seek him? Would you pray that he would raise up helpers and send them? Why not pray specifically uh, with people in your in mind it's amazing what the lord could do for example with the non-christian who you've just started sitting reading the bible with it's amazing what the lord could do with the timid person who's scared terrified by the prospect of sharing their faith but he can do something if we pray we also pray to the lord that he would send you into the harvest field. Pray that he would send you, that he would enable you to engage in a meaningful, effective gospel ministry, bringing the gospel of the kingdom to others. In the next chapter, he's going to send out his disciples. At the end of the gospel, he's going to command to make disciples in all the nations. It's the Lord that oversees mission. Therefore, we need to pray to him in the shared mission of evangelizing uh, the city of London to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, um, we realize uh, the spiritual uh, condition of people all around us. There are shepherdless uh, sheep lost sinners father we recognize that that isn't that is a problem but not a problem that we ought to turn our backs on it's a great opportunity father we recognize that we are underprepared for that and that there is a great need for more laborers father so we pray that you would send laborers into the harvest field Father, we pray that for Beckentree. We pray that there would be more people coming. We pray that there would be non-Christians coming whose lives would be encountered by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and used 
in order to extend that grace to the lives of others. So Father, we pray this uh, earnestly. We ask that you'd help us to continue to pray this, to continue to depend on you, and to go. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.